Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Banter Podcast, episode 28. This is your host, Ben Cohn, and this is my co-host, Mike Luciano. Uh, Mike, my friend, how are you this week? Ben, I am morbidly amazed if there is such a thing. We passed uh, 200,000 deaths due to coronavirus, and it feels like this should have got more attention. Um, It feels like there was more attention on us hitting 100,000 deaths than 200,000 deaths. It feels like that once we hit 100,000, it's like we just decided as a nation that uh, we were done with the coronavirus or that like the pandemic was over or that it was just going to be a regular part of life uh, for an indefinite period of time and there's nothing we can do about it. And I think that's how a lot of Americans feel. And I think they, they feel that way in large part because of Donald Trump, who is going about things as if we're living in pre-pandemic times. The only occasions he seems to mention coronavirus now is to say that we're going to have a vaccine soon or that he's done a great job. Uh, Other than that, he's acting like everything is just fine. And you see it at his rallies, uh, whether they're outdoor or indoor, where his supporters uh, mostly don't wear masks. And you see it with him, you know, putting pressure on cities and states to reopen and even on college football teams to play their seasons. You know, he, he wants life in this country to look normal. So people think the pandemic is over when they go and cast their ballot and they think Trump suppressed the virus. That's all this is about. And no matter how much he has to gaslight, basically inspire people to engage in reckless behavior, not wearing masks, not social distancing. Trump is going to do these things because he only cares about himself. He only cares about winning as he understands winning. And if there's one thing to know about the guy, that's it. It's an absolute horror show. 200,000 Americans dead. I mean, this is, I can't remember what the statistic was, just something ridiculous, like a 9-11 every two days or something. This is uh, sort of incalculable tragedy. And yet Trump wants you to believe it's not happening. He wants you to think about Antifa. He wants you to think about Hunter Biden. He wants you to think about the fake mail-in ballot scandal, that this is a disaster and the Democrats are trying to read the election. And the threat is real. You can still catch COVID. You can still die from it. You can still get incredibly sick from it. You can still spread it on, to spread it to other people. It's, just, it's bad. I mean, we had our own COVID scare this week. Um, we, we hired a contractor to do something in our basement. And uh, he tested positive for COVID. So we've spent the last five days isolating um, to make sure that we're okay. We've only been around it with masks on, but still nevertheless, very scary. Thankfully, the contractor seems to be okay. And um, touch wood, we haven't experienced any symptoms yet. And hoping we don't experience any symptoms. But it was just a kind of reminder that, you know, that this thing is is ever present and it's, it's a threat. And if we don't take it seriously, it, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But you know, Trump, because he doesn't think more than a day in advance. Whatever is happening today, how, whatever Trump can do to control the news cycle and keep Americans feeling positive today is what he'll do. So it means forget about the long-term consequences of, of anything and what benefits him in the news cycle. And that's his strategy. You know, And it's caused 200,000 people to die. I mean, that's, that's murder. He's essentially killing Americans and getting away with it. I mean, it's it's horrific, and and uh, you know, this is not a conspiracy theory. Um, you know, when I say that Trump is killing Americans, this is not some far left talking point. This is this is an actual. This is what he's doing. You know, through sheer negligence and sheer incompetence. But it's not even negligence because he's actively trying to hamper measures to prevent the spread of of the coronavirus. You know, it, it, it's any other person if he wasn't being protected by the Republicans would be in prison by now for this kind of abominable behavior. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pissed. I'm, I'm sad and I'm pissed. This is not, you know, not a good week, another not good week. No, there really aren't any good weeks in the Trump era. You know, and we've had another bad one this week because of another awful thing that Donald Trump said on Wednesday, he held a press briefing and he fielded a question about there being a peaceful transfer of power after the election in the event that he loses. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I understand that, but people are rioting. Do you commit to making sure that there's a peaceful transfer? We want to get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very very peaceful 
there won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. The second question is, Please go ahead. So that's the president of the United States refusing to say that if he loses the election, there will be a peaceful transition of power. That's the president of the United States saying, uh, get rid of the ballots, whatever that means. I guess just throw away all mail-in ballots. This is terrifying. If American democracy had a threat scale, like the DEFCON 5 through 1, with 1 being our democracy is about to be nuked, we're at DEFCON 2. And Ben, you have known me for a while. You know I am not an alarmist. So for me to say that Trump is going to try to steal this election and maintain his grip on power no matter what, you know that I am genuinely worried that this will happen, and with good reason. I uh, wrote a piece about this today, um, well, on Friday, actually, on the the roundup, on the banter, banter brief. And basically, you know, my, my whole thing on this is that he's telling us what he's going to do. He's been telling us this for some time. He's not going to listen to the election outcome result unless if he doesn't like it, he's going to deny it. He's going to say that it was rigged and it's unfair and that uh, he's going to use everything in his power to ensure that he, he stays in office. He's been telling us this for, for months, for years now. Uh, and everyone's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm worried about this, that this is happening. This is what I fear is going to happen. Like, it's going to happen. There, there is no, is it going to happen? He's going to, try, first of all, he's try, already trying to rig the election. He's trying to undermine people's faith in mail-in ballots, right? So, you know, in the meantime, he's trying to, his campaign is desperately trying to convince um, uh, people to mail their ballots in. They're calling it absentee ballots, uh, even though there's no difference between absentee ballots and mail-in, mail-in ballots. It's the same thing. Because he, obviously, a lot of Republicans are kind of freaked out about this as well because they he needs to have, um, you know, Republicans need to to uh, vote by mail as well because there's, you know, a lot of elderly voters who are going to feel unsafe and unsecure going to, uh, you know, polling booths. So they're in this, like, very funny position where he's denouncing them and trying to convince some of his supporters to, to use mail-in ballots at the same time. But it's part of his sort of, you know, he's an agent of chaos, right? He's undermining everybody's sort of um, faith in the election and in democracy in America so that he can basically turn around on election day or after election day and say, yeah, see, look, you know, there's widespread fraud. Um, I'm not going to accept the results. I mean, there was some very, very powerful pieces. There was a one um, extremely good piece in The Atlantic this week, which is a uh, it's a pre- it's basically an early release of a, of the November issue of The Atlantic. And, um, you know, The Atlantic published it early because they believe it's, you know, it's an it's an urgent issue. And this, this is by Barton Gelman. And Barton Gelman um, has has a, a very, very, very stark warning about what about what is about to happen. I thought maybe I could just read uh, I'll, I'll read a, a section of it right to to uh, to sort of um, uh, spell out the danger that we're that we're facing. So, yeah, he says, um, here we go. This is Barton Gelman in The Atlantic says, the worst case, however, is not that Trump rejects the election outcome. The worst case is that he uses his power to prevent a decisive outcome against him. If Trump sheds all restraints and if his Republican allies play the parts he assigns them, he could obstruct the emergence of a legally unambiguous victory for Biden in the Electoral College and then in Congress. He could prevent the formation of consensus about whether there is any outcome at all. He could seize on that uncertainty to hold on to power. And I, th- I think that that's a, an extremely accurate distillation of what Trump is about to do, what what he's laying the ground groundwork to do, right? He's, you know, because it's not going to be like, I think it's pretty clear now that um, Trump has few pathways to, to a, a genuine victory, right? I'm, you know, I'm not obviously like, I'll believe it when I see it, but I, I still, the polls, it's pretty clear, right, that, that, Biden is favoured to win the election, you know, for a reason, and heavily favoured to win the election for a reason. Trump is is not doing well at the moment. His campaign is a, is a complete joke. So uh, this is his chance, right? This is his chance is to basically make sure that you know, come come election day, uh, November third, 
um, he'll, de- you know, he might declare victory straight away, and then basically so a lot of confusion because the mail-in ballots won't have been counted, right? And then he'll he'll declare victory, um, and then say that all the mail-in ballots are fake. You know that there's there's lots of um, corruption and they've been you know fraudulent um, ballots like cast by convicted felons or whatever or you know he'll 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 just make it up right um, and this is where I you know in the confusion and the chaos is Trump this is what Trump lives for right he loves to make kind of this sort of serious he loves to undermine things and people's people's faith or, or understanding of reality right so and that's when he makes his move so i think that this is the danger this is the danger that we're facing and this is what he's going to do i think it's clear what he's going to do uh, and is, he's telling us what he's going to do he absolutely is and despite this i see a lot of anti-trumpers saying that we're being alarmist and hyperbolic and of course there would be a peaceful transition to power if Trump loses. And I imagine they think this because that's how it's worked in every presidential election we've ever had. Some people think that more than 230 years of rule of law and political norms will be enough to contain Trump. Well, I got news for those folks, and I hate to say it, but the Constitution is no match for Donald Trump. The Constitution, our laws, our norms, at the end of the day, only apply if we're willing to adhere to them, especially the people who are in power. And as hard as it is to face the prospect that we have a president that's ready to throw all of that into the trash can, we need to face it because that's what he has been telling us. This might be the only thing we can take Trump at his word on. So in March 2019, he told Breitbart, This is a quote. I can tell you I have the support of the police, the support of the military, the support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they go to a certain point, and then it would be very, very bad. So here he's kind of signaling like they, oh, if the Democrats go to a certain point, then the police and the military and the the bikers could get tough on them. Dog whistling violence, possibly, you know, priming that demo for violence against political opponents. And then in June of last year, he said, Uh, when you look at past impeachments, whether it was President Clinton or I guess President Nixon never got there, he left. I don't leave. It's a big difference. I don't leave. I don't leave. I don't leave. And for what it's worth, Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal attorney, he probably knows Trump as well as anyone, maybe better than anyone, maybe better than Melania knows him, Ivanka, like who knows all of the stuff that Michael Cohen helped Trump cover up. But he went before Congress last year and he said that he believes that if Trump loses the election, there is not going to be a tr- peaceful transition of power. So when you combine Trump say, just absolutely saying, flat out refusing to commit to a peaceful tr- transition of power, when you combine that with his assault on mail-in voting, both rhetorically and legally, we have to conclude that he will do anything to stay in power. He's While he's suing Nevada over mail-in voting, he's encouraging people in Florida vote, to vote by mail because he figures the retirees there want to vote for him, but might be reluctant to show up in person during a pandemic. On top of that, you have the U.S. Postal Service, which has been taking mail sorting machines offline, they've changed the overtime rules, and the result is a very predictable slowing of the delivery of mail, which, of course, affects mail-in ballots. And he's been saying Democrats are going to try to rig this election, just like he did in 2016 when he thought he was going to lose. And just to show how politicized this has all become You know, it's one thing for Trump to stoke this fire. It's another thing for the Department of Justice to do it. Attorney General Bill Barr, who has just been a shameless toady and basically campaign operative for Trump, he has suggested that mail carriers could be bribed into giving people extra ballots. He suggested Democrats would fabricate 
100,000 ballots for Biden in swing states. But yesterday, the DOJ hit a new low, uh, specifically the U.S. attorney uh, for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. That's a guy named David Freed. His office issued two press releases. The first announced they had launched an investigation into election officials in Pennsylvania because nine mail-in ballots sent in by military members were allegedly discarded. And the announcement made a special note of saying that all nine ballots had been cast for Trump. Then that U.S. attorney's office took the statement down and issued a new release saying that only seven of the ballots were for Trump. And it's not clear at this point who the other ballots were cast for. So let's talk about this for a second. The Justice Department almost never announces that it's launched an investigation. It doesn't give periodic updates or anything like that. It will virtually never confirm or deny that someone or something is under investigation. This is why Jim Comey got a lot of heat with that Hillary letter. It's just not something that is done. You know, usually when a U.S. attorney's office issues a press release, it's to announce an indictment, a plea, a conviction, a sentencing. That's mainly it. And the other point here is that, in theory, it should be of no interest and no relevance or a Justice Department investigation for whom these ballots were cast. They're investigating the discarding of ballots. That's what this should be about. But since this is Trump's highly politicized DOJ, the DOJ wants you to know not only are there nine, just nine, not saying the nine shouldn't count because they definitely should, but the, the DOJ wants you to know these ballots, most of these ballots were cast for Trump, if not all of them. And that is abnormal behavior by the Justice Department, and it's just another example of how politicized it's become, which is to say that it's become corrupt. Yeah, and I mean, look, this is why it's so scary heading into the election, right? Is that because the DOJ has become so politicized that, uh, you know, Trump can order these investigations and sort of predetermine the outcome. You know, he can basically, and Barr will do whatever he's told. Um, they'll find, the, Barr will find whatever it is Trump wants him to find, and he'll cast out wherever Trump wants him to cast out. You know, it's, it's, so this is this is what the, the the sort of fear that I have. And Andrew Sullivan actually has a very good piece um, out in his uh, newsletter this week about about why this is all so dangerous, right? And what and you know, his line is that we've we're all underestimating Trump's ability to pull this off, right? And um, you know, and he says basically that Trump has all the characteristics that you need uh, to pull this kind of stunt off. And the fact that he, he is completely shameless, he's com he will just lie and lie and lie, uh, and he'll cause unimaginable chaos to get whatever he wants. So he, he uh, compares Trump to Richard III in, in, in uh, Shakespeare's Richard III. He says this, he says, denial, avoidance, distraction, willful ignorance. These are all essential to enabling a tyrant's rights. And keeping this pattern going is Richard's profound grasp of the power shock. He does and says the unexpected and unthinkable in order to stun his opponents into a kind of dazed passivity. It's this capacity to keep you on your heels, to keep disorienting you with the unacceptable which is then somehow accepted, that marks a tyrant's relentless drive. He does this by instinct. He craves chaos, lies, suspense, surprises. Not because he's a genius, but because stability threatens his psyche. He cannot rest. He's not in control of himself. And whenever the dust settles, as it were, he has to disturb again. And Sullivan goes on. He says, this is what we've been dealing with in the figure of Donald Trump for now five years. And it is absurd to believe that a duly conducted election is going to end it. I know, I know, I'm hysterical and over the top and a victim of Trump derangement syndrome. Trump is simply too incompetent and too lazy to be an actual tyrant. I'm constantly scolded. He's just baiting me again, and so on. But what I think this otherwise salient critique misses is that tyranny is not, in essence, in its essence, about the authoritarian and administrative skills required to run a country effectively for a long time. Tyrants, after all, are terrible at this. It is rather about a mindset, as the ancient philosophers understood, with obvious political consequences. It's a pathology. It requires no expertise in anything other than itself. So does the Trump administration end like Richard III? Oh, God. That's pretty dramatic. That would be pretty dramatic, right. But, I mean, 
A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I, I think, um, but I think Sullivan is right here, you know, and this goes back to a, a, a very, very good essay that Sullivan wrote at the beginning of, um, just before Trump was le- um, elected, calling um, calling it an, extent, an extinction level event, um, where he talked about uh, Plato. Plato talked about um, the rise of the strongman. Um, and and Plato's description of the strongman was just unnervingly accurate. I mean, just you'd think that he was writing. He, you'd think that Plato was talking about now that Plato was some guy writing in the Atlantic in you know 2015. But he he absolutely nailed the archetype, right? You know, the the strongman, the man who um, he, a, a rich um, wealthy person who's but who's not from you know the elite breeding but he has disdain everybody all the elites that hate him but he the common people think he's one of them and he that you know that's when he makes his move so you know i think um sullivan's right here to draw as many historical uh, parallels uh, with what's happening as as possible anybody who studied history knows exactly what's going on knows exactly what this kind of character is and what this kind of represents for human societies yeah, and and that's uh, yeah, that's what's happening. Also, Sullivan, I think, correctly makes the argument that um, contrary to you know what a lot of us believe about Trump being ineffective, he's actually been remarkably effective. He has gotten away with all of it. And I was thinking how when Trump gets his third nominee on the Supreme Court, and he will, because there is yeah. nothing Democrats can do about it. And since the last show that we recorded Mitt Romney came out and said that he would vote for Trump's nominee to be fair to be fair to Romney he he said he'll vote on it he doesn't he didn't hasn't said he'll vote oh. like I still hold out a, a, a modicum of hope that Romney will vote against Ben this is going through I hate to give you the bad news but look no but I think it's notable that he that Romney said he'll vote he'll vote but it's not clear that he'll he will vote for the nominee, but uh, you're probably right. I, I'm about ninety nine percent certain that this is going through. <laughs> yeah. So, but you say say Romney, say Lisa Murkowski, and <laughs> say Susan Collins, just for the sake of argument, w- vote no on a Trump nominee. You still need a fourth. Who is that fourth? Yeah, there's no one. There's yeah. no one. So there's no one. McConnell's McConnell was has corralled all the, all the Senate Republicans and uh, they're going to do his bidding for sure. Yeah. So with McConnell breaking his own, not rule, more like his own self-serving caprice from 2016 about not filling a seat in an election year. And obviously McConnell has reversed himself on this, as we mentioned last week. But with this going on, a lot of people on the left are really pissed off at this. And they've been talking about the idea of making Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico states, you know, D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. So let's let's talk about that for a second. In D.C.'s case, it's not really about making Washington, D.C. a state, because constitutionally, there must be a federal district that is separate from any state. So it's not about making D.C. a state. It's about carving out the sections of D.C. where people actually live and making it into a state that's called something other than the District of Columbia. And this would be perfectly legal to do. Congress has the power to do it. The Constitution says that the Congress uh, has the power to do it. Republicans obviously disagree, and they have some arguments about why it can't be done. None of them are very convincing because they fly right in the face of what the constitutional text says. But if that's something that goes through the courts, D.C. statehood, it and it almost certainly would, bad arguments be damned, conservative judges might find them all very convincing, you know, including a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court majority that we will have. But if somehow you cleave off a new state from D.C., and, and this is kind of interesting, actually, this is, this is quirky, this is kind of nerd stuff, but the new state would get its representation in the House, it would get one vote in the House, probably, based on its what its population is, and then it would get the two senators, and it would have three electoral votes. And 
Meanwhile, the District of Columbia would maintain its three electoral votes. The 23rd Amendment provides for the district getting three electoral votes or electoral votes based on its population. So you'd have a situation where in all likelihood, you'd have an extremely small number of people controlling those three electoral votes. Like maybe the president and his family and whoever else is eligible to register to vote in what remains of the original district of Columbia, you know, that wasn't, you know, carved into the new state. So I find that, I just find that very quirky and interesting. I mean, you could have a scenario where whoever's living in the White House that is registered to vote in the district of Columbia is, is gets to apportion three electoral votes. With Puerto Rico, it's um, it'd be cleaner. There are really no legal arguments of any kind, good or bad, Republicans could make against it. And I say, why well, stop there? I mean, we got, seriously, we got the U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa. But again, talking about the GOP objecting to, you know, creating a new state out of D.C., that ties in with the case for court packing or court expansion expansion by the Democrats, which also dovetails into the filibuster, which even if Democrats regain the Senate, they'd have to end the filibuster, which they can do. Would there be a will to end the filibuster? Would there be a will to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court and maybe even lower courts? Um, you know, does Chuck Schumer want to go down the road of ending the filibuster? Does Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi want to go down the road of expanding the federal courts so that a president Biden hypothetically could appoint more judges? Does a president Biden go along with this plan? I am not so sure. Even though the, the 2022 Senate map looks terrible for Republicans, which would be a further argument, another argument for doing this stuff. It's a real tricky one. And I've, I've been having this discussion with a lot of people uh, over the last week. But I can't help but come away with the calculation that now the Democrats have no choice. They have literally no choice. Like They, they are going to be forced to do that. They are. That's what they're going to have to do. They will have to end the filibuster. They will have to pack the Supreme Court, um, and they will have to explore other options like statehood for DC and Puerto Rico, or etc. Right? Because what you're witnessing here is is this this extraordinary paragraph by Mitch McConnell. Like it's utterly, utterly shameless and shameful. What he's doing is this sort of, and and this is the the politics that Mitch McConnell has created in the Senate, right? He's basically destroyed the Senate. You know, you know there's a good piece actually by Ezra Klein this week about what Mitch McConnell has done to the to US. He's, he he will go down in history as one of the most uh, important senators to have ever lived, right? Not for good reason, but basically destroying destroying the institution for what it was supposed to be, and and, and he's basically turned it into this sort of a hyper partisan arm of party politics it's all about power it's all about getting as much power um <clears throat> for one party as as possible and that's exactly what 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 mcconnell is doing now right so either the democrats allow this to slide right because like you know you, you look at the supreme if the supreme court is six three uh conservative right what does that mean for progressive policy that gets that that there's when there are legal challenges, right, to you know, Obamacare or whatever or Roe versus Wade, and this goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, then just think about what that means. That means there's just no the, the Democrats are almost pointless. All branches of government, right? They can hold they can hold the presidency, the Senate, they can hold Congress, right? But they can't ever get anything done because the country is essentially controlled by a hyper activist uh, Supreme Court. So I think this means that, yeah, look, it's, it's filled with um, danger, right, doing that, packing the court, ending the filibuster. These are all incredibly dangerous moves that, like, I think that, you know, a lot of Democrats are rightfully very, very, very wary about, about doing. But I don't see now what choice they have. You know, their party is going to demand it, right? The, like the activist wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, just not even the activist wing. I think most party, most Democrats, if Republicans ram this Supreme Court nominee through, are, are going to be actively calling out for this to happen. You know, I, I don't, I don't see how they can avoid it now. You know, and I don't. It's not their fault. You know, it's. I, I don't blame them for for. Um, being skeptical about this uh, because the, because the, the you know there are consequences to this there are consequences to do it to, to making the, there's political payback to be had and, and Republicans can you, you know they're essentially 
playing the same game as Republicans, right? And once you play the same game as Republicans, that's it. It's a war, right? Once you stop being the adult in the room, it's a war. And, right. But I don't see a way back now. I don't, I, don't, I don't see how they can pull this back. I really don't. And Biden has been urging, you know, civility and urging senators to do the right thing. I feel like, you know, Biden's not stupid. I think he understands what's happening. I think he, he knows what's about to happen. But he's laying the groundwork for himself. He wants to build the moral argument for the Democrats to make these bold moves. You look at what adhering to political norms and trusting that Republicans will also adhere to political norms has gotten us. Look where we are. Gets us nowhere. It gets us nowhere. And we, we talked earlier in this show because we had to, because we're at this point about Trump not possibly leaving because he has said that he's not going to commit to a peaceful transition of power because he is concerned that he will lose and he is going to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election if the numbers are bad for him. And his, his Republican enablers will go along with it. So here we are. And, and, and look what else. You know, it occurs to me, take the Supreme Court, that 6-3 majority we're about to have. Once he gets that 6-3 majority, that means that five out of the nine justices will have been appointed by presidents who became president after losing the popular vote. So Trump in 2016, George Bush in 2000, yes, Bush appointed Roberts and Alito in his second term after he won the popular vote. But Bush first got the presidency because he lost the popular vote. There's that. There's also, I mentioned last week, that Democratic Senate candidates in 2018 collectively won the popular vote by 19 points, and they lost two seats. So the Republicans argue in bad faith. They behave in bad faith. They've stolen a a Supreme Court seat. You could argue they've stolen two Supreme Court seats. And this is just where we are. And, And the demographics of the country are changing. But, you know, how do we allow that to translate into results that are favorable to our side when Republicans are doing everything they can from voter suppression to gerrymandering to casting doubt on mail-in ballots and then having their worst tendencies enabled by a deeply partisan federal judiciary that is just loaded with Trump Federalist Society judges. We have to have an all-of-the-above strategy. If it means ending the filibuster, we should do it. If it means expanding the courts, we should do it and make sure the results are representative of what this population wants to to get done. You know, Trump is a deeply unpopular president, and he there's almost no way he's going to win the popular vote, but there is a chance he could win the electoral vote. It should not be that way. And people say, oh, well, that's the electoral college. That's how it works. Yeah, but that's not how the electoral college was ever supposed to work. You know, the, the electoral college was supposed to be this small slate of electors that would choose the person who is best for the job. It was designed to keep guys like Donald Trump out, keep the demagogues out of power. But it has never worked as intended, and that's why we have what we have. And that's why we actually have to talk about the possible death of American democracy within the next few months. Yeah, I mean, you know, the stakes are incredibly high. You know, they are incredibly high. Uh, and and I, you know, like you, I, I, I don't see any other choice now. I mean, I guess my point, is that like I I think that Biden is going to have to do this. You know I don't really see I don't know. Do you, would you agree with that? I mean, what what do you think the political um, cost of not doing it would be? Like you know what happens if Biden doesn't do that? Well, if, if Biden doesn't do that, we just get the same thing in twenty twenty four. We get the same the same battle like voter suppression. The courts will rule in favor of you know the latest voter ID law. Or, you know, they'll vote to strike down the ACA, Roe v. Wade. That is extremely in jeopardy. And, and you just have to look at this and you just you make a calculation, and say, all right, listen, we can get rid of the filibuster. Then we can expand the courts. We can get a liberal majority. Oh, also, uh, we can make uh, we can carve a new state out of D.C. We can make Puerto Rico into a state, the Virgin Islands, if we want. And then you look at ahead to 2022, and 
we mentioned last week that that is a Senate map that is not at all favorable to the Republicans. They're going to have to defend a bunch of seats in swing states while Democrats, not so much. So that could be, mm. there's a chance to expand your Senate majority. You know, you, you could have, you could expand your Senate majority immediately by, by carving a new state out of DC and making Puerto Rico a state. That's something that Congress can do. But my fear is that Biden, Schumer, Feinstein, that they won't go along with this. I think they're just such institutionalists and they have such respect for the institution and norms and they have a severe aversion to quote unquote radical ideas that Democrats, even if they have a majority, they might have a hard time mustering that majority to end the filibuster or approve a court packing plan or whatever it is that it's clear Democrats need to do at this point to make sure the Republicans aren't allowed to continue this fuckery, if you will. You know, like, like you said, yeah. I don't think I don't think they have a choice. I think, you know, in, in any it's, it's like, all right, you made us do this. If we do this, you Republicans, you made it. You forced us to do this. We have no choice. You have been such bad faith actors for so long that this is now what we have to do. Right, and 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 I and I, I you know this is what what I see the end game being. I see the end game being, um, and then I guess it just depends on how skillfully that's enacted. So, so my my hope right is that they the Democrats basically. Uh, rally around Biden when he gets elected, and uh, they have, uh, you know, they the Senate Democrats all get kind of whipped in in line. They get they all get in line um, and make sure that they all vote the same way. And basically, you, know, you you get rid of the filibuster and you pack the Supreme Court, but you do it incredibly quickly, right? You do it fast. Okay, so that you can reap maximum rewards as early as possible, um, and by the time you know the midterms are around, it would have been you know 18 months ago, and everyone would have forgotten about it, right? So you just have a new political reality, right? And and I feel like that that's what um, Democrats need to really get you know really kind of focus on, right? Is creating a new political reality, right? And then forcing the Republicans to sit back and 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 there won't be anything they can do about it, right? They, they can kick and scream as much as they want, but if they're out of power, they're out of power, right? And I think the mistake that they would make is by leaving it too long. The more the the longer they leave it, the the faster they erode their advantage their their advantage when Biden gets in, um, and the, the, then the more the Republicans can start fucking with it and and building um, uh, public opinion and setting public opinion against them. If they if they ram it through quickly, I don't think the the, the public is not really going to know what's happening. That's how fast you got to move. I think I think you do these things extremely quickly. Um, I don't know how. F- fast practically that can be done um but i'm you know look if you look at the trump playbook that's exactly what trump and the republicans do all the time they just ram things through and then the democrats are left wondering like what the fuck happened so this is exactly what the democrats have to do they have to ram through a whole host of legislation uh, and that should just be part of it you know then you've got kind of more coronavirus stimulus package you've got um you know you know new green deal all these kind of things all these kind of things have to be done fast the more yep. they're debated and the more they're, you know, they're fiddled and faffed around with Democrats arguing with each other, the more Republicans get to chip away at these good ideas. So, you know, that's the only way I foresee, I foresee this being this working, because right. it, it, if they save it and say, look, 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 let's wait to the midterms in 2022, like, you know, post 2022, that's a mistake, in my opinion. You would have lost the political capital. It is. It is. And not only that, you put the issue on the ballot. Which would be a huge mistake. Bad, bad too. Yeah, no, I agree. If you do this, you got to move. You got to move fast. Uh, so it's a non-issue, but not a non-issue. But so it's it's not fresh in the minds of people. Yeah. Like, you yeah, know, let when, them get worked up about something else, you know? Right. When Republicans whine about expanding the courts and ending the filibuster, by the time it rolls around, people will be like, oh, what? Oh, oh that thing from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, well, we're on to this new thing. But right. I got to I got to take a sh- pot shot at Joe Lieberman's son. <laughs> I, I have to we have we have time. Um so for those of you who have not been following this, Joe Lieberman's son Matt Lieberman is running for Senate in the special election for US Senate in Georgia. In this election, uh, the, they do things in Georgia a little different. So 
on the ballot is a whole bunch of people. You've got multiple Republicans, multiple Democrats, and so forth on one ballot in the general election. And if nobody gets a majority of the vote, it goes to a runoff between the top two vote getters. And right now, it's very close at the top. So you have Kelly Leffler, who is the incumbent. She is polling at 23% of the vote. And behind her is Republican Doug Collins, who has 19% of the vote. And Raphael Warnock, who is the Democrat, is a Democrat, and he also has 19% of the vote. So you've got Leffler, Republican, 23% of the vote. Collins, Republican, 19% of the vote. Warnock, Democrat, 19% of the vote. Warnock, he's on the edge there. He might not crack the top two. Obviously, nobody's going to get a majority in this one. And Warnock is very much in danger of not getting into the top two. Why is that? Because Matt Lieberman, a Democrat, is polling at 7% and refuses to drop out of the race. Matt Lieberman has no chance of doing anything. Anything noteworthy in this race except spoiling a runoff possibility for Warnock. This guy has to get out of the race. The Lieberman family, even when they're out of office, they're fucking Democrats over. And Matt Lieberman needs to drop out of this race right now. That's my rant on the yeah, Lieberman fuck family. That fuck, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Yeah. And well. And while we're at it, can I totally? Oh yeah, you are, yeah, 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 please, 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 go ahead. All right, before we go, I'm just. This is just. I'm sorry. This is. We're going to end the show with some free floating hostility. I meant to mention earlier Matt Taibbi's response to Donald Trump's refusal to say that if he loses, he'll allow for a peaceful transition of power. Matt Taibbi. So this was on Wednesday when Trump said this, and a couple hours after Trump said this, I was curious. You know, Matt Taibbi, Rolling Stone journalist, blogger, podcaster, apparent never Bidener. I was just curious what he had to say on this like direct shot across the bow of American democracy. And in the two hours or so since uh, Trump said this, Taibbi tweeted like seven or eight times. And all of the tweets, wouldn't you know, were about Hunter Biden. Because that's the real, that's the big problem here. That's the big problem. Hunter Biden's company accepting a $3.5 million payment from like the, the wife of the former mayor of Moscow. Was it for shady purposes? Maybe, maybe not. Is this a terrible look? Absolutely. Do I care more about this than the direct threat to democracy in America that Donald Trump poses? Absolutely not. I do not. And just again, yet another example of like the never Biden left with their head up their ass. And just I guess they don't care. You know, maybe they hope they maybe they hope Trump wins a, a second term. So, you know, they, they can just go on and talk about how, how much Democrats suck and how they blew it again. And, you know, I envision a scenario where it's like 2030 and Generalissimo Trump is still in power. Guys like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald are just they're still going on about how awful Democrats would be if they were allowed to still exist in this scenario. I just I just don't get it. I mean, it's crazy. Like, you know, David Sirota again, we talked about this last week on the podcast about my my uh, little letter to uh, David Sirota asking him to shut the fuck up. Uh, you know, I actually had to mute him on Twitter because for some stupid reason I keep follow, I you know keep reading what this guy has to say. But it's you know the whole there's a, there's a whole set of talking points that goes on in this sort of in this kind of little grifting grifter corner uh of of the um of the of the twitterverse right um progressives i don't know would you call them progressives maybe um there's some well, good work. a lot of them are women yeah 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 okay there, there, there's there's women in there as well um but it's you know i would say that david sorota katie halper is one of them katie halper matt Taibbi. David Sirota um, and a lot of, uh, and uh, who, who the other one? Glenn, Green, Glenn Greenwald, Michael Tracy, a part of this sort of um, cottage industry on the on the left that basically lives for bashing Democrats. Um, I just don't. I can't, you know, and what was David Sirota? Everything is now through the lens of how bad the Democrats are, right? So we had the whole Ruth Bader uh, uh, Ginsburg death and all David Sirota could talk about 
right, was was going after Chuck Schumer, right? That's all he had. He's like, Chuck, we need to we need to threaten Chuck Schumer. We need to primary him. We need to do the you know we need to uh, throw everything we have at, at, at Chuck Schumer because he's not up to the task. Um, you know, he's not. They had all these opportunities to to make the Republicans hold them to account, but they won't do it. It's all Chuck Schumer's fault. It's like, wait a second, hold, hold a second. Like, Chuck Schumer isn't, the, it, he's not the guy, you can have, I've got my issues with Chuck Schumer, right? But he is not the one ramming through a Supreme Court nominee, right? He, he, <laughs> he is not the one denigrating, um, uh, what was it Ginsburg's uh, granddaughter said that her, her last uh, uh, wish was that the person to succeed her would be whoever was elected on um, in November 4th, right? Um, and Trump said that it was uh, a lie, right? That, that wasn't Chuck Schumer who said any, any of this stuff. Um, why is the Sorota immediately has to filter it through the lens of how can we attack Democrats? It's just like crazy. Said, it's just like crazy. It's it's this little cottage industry they've got, and they've they've cultivated these followers, and uh, you know they've hit upon something. And if you look at their mentions, like yes, a lot of them are never Biden progressives, but there's also a lot of conservatives in there. There's also a lot of Trumpers, and and again, it's just you know they they fill the role that uh, uh, Steve Schmidt fills, a conservative, um, you know, former conser- Republican operative fills for the left. You know, he's someone that MSNBC mm. can, you know, trot out there and just say, yes, we Republicans suck, <laughs> you know? Right, so, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get it. And they probably, you know, they're making, I'm sure they're making good money doing it. Uh, but it, it's just so disingenuous. It's it's so, so disingenuous to, to, to do this. I mean, look, you know, and it's notable that Chuck Schumer came out, uh, Chuck Schumer made, he specifically threatened Republicans and said, if you do this, then there's, there, there's nothing, then everything is on the table uh, in, in 2021. Everything is on the table. Basically saying, yes, uh, I unfortunately don't have an optimistic view of what everything means for Chuck Schumer. Right. I mean, look, you know, again, like you can have your issues with Chuck Schumer, like which I do. You know, I've got many, many issues with Chuck Schumer. But again, let's just keep 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 focused on on who the real bad people are here. You know, keep focused on on who are the who's the, the real problem. Right, and, and and it's also this idea that um, that David Sirota and Matt Taibbi that they're for some reason they they are the ones who know what the Democrats need to do to win elections. Right, I mean, look, you know, and and again, this is like, and this is, I'm telling you, this is coming from someone who has, generally speaking, supported Bernie Sanders every time he's run. I've always liked Bernie Sanders. I've always wanted him to win, right? But at a certain point in time, I came to accept that this wasn't going to happen. Right, that the country is just not sufficiently left wing enough for this to happen. Right, as much as I wanted it to be true, it's just not true. You're talking about the Midwest. You're talking about, you know, the Deep South. These are places that Bernie Sanders cannot build a coalition big enough to win. Right, he can't attract enough uh, enough African American uh, votes. Right, there are just pro- there are just problems with his um you know the, the his demographics right who he who he can reach do i like that do i want that to be true no i don't want that to be true but i have to accept that that's reality right and and, and when it comes to winning general elections like unfortunately like as we're now seeing right it's basically comes down to who can win in the midwest again Right? Who wins in the Midwest? Who can build a broad enough coalition to to beat the the Republican machine? And it's incredibly difficult stuff, right? And and it means that like you know, look like for for whatever you want to say about Biden, like he won the primaries pretty handily, you know. So the the notion that these these um, uh, I'm not going to call them progressives, uh, but these uh, grifters understand what it takes to win an election is ridiculous okay how about one of your candidates wins an election before you start lecturing everybody else about what the democrats need to do just one right you know? how many elections did did, did uh was it did the justice democrats win i don't know i don't okay. know who qualifies the justice democrats no i i think i don't think any of them as far as i'm aware or or not more than two yeah, I don't even I don't even know how you define a justice democrat 
it's a it's a pack. Yeah, the the the, the Democrats that the 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 Justice Democrats support. Um, but you know, let's just let's win a few. Let's win elections before you start lecturing everybody else on how to win elections. You know, I think I found a way to end this podcast on a high note. On a high note. Oh, we've been asked in the comments, by the way. So uh, yeah, we, we've got to, we we had some very nice comments um, uh, on the last podcast, by the way. So, uh, but I wanted to, um, <laughs> I, I wanted to read one of them. Um, uh, one of our one of our readers, one of our lovely readers. Uh, has said, uh, uh, please don't ever try to end on a good note again, okay? At least not until after January. All right, so I will not end No, up. do it, do it, Mike, and I'll try and bring the mood down. Well, really, it's, it's, it's good for me because it, it ends, this idea that I have ends with me being a United States senator. So there's okay. been we we talked about how the idea is being floated of uh, carving out a new state out of Washington DC making Puerto Rico into a state I mentioned the Virgin Islands and Guam and it occurs to me there is a US territory in the Pacific called Johnston Atoll population 0 and it was a nuclear testing site uh, back in the day in the 40s and 50s I think and I'm thinking if if we're going to you know just go all out on creating new states that that are going to vote democrat then maybe my wife and I and our dog can move there and become the only three inhabitants or only three residents that aren't wildlife I don't know if there's wildlife I don't know what the nuclear contamination situation is there but we'd be willing to take one for the team my wife and I could be the senators, and the dog, Yankee, could be the representative, and we would get votes in the Congress, and we would get three electoral votes. So, hey, what do you think? Plausible plan? Hey, man, I'm, I'm up for it. I, I think uh, post-2020, uh, anything is, anything is, is viable. Uh, and I think the Democrats should. You should take this to the DNC. You should take this to Chuck Schumer uh, and Nancy Pelosi, and um, you know, go for it. I, I've got ten ten bucks to uh, to help fund your ticket to, to to DC to talk about this stuff. Right. The only thing is, the dog is not twenty five years old, so I don't know if he could be <laughs> the congressman. He's he's definitely twenty five in dog years. He's he's got that. I don't know if it translates though. I'll have to look at the relevant case law on this when it comes to having uh, underage dogs serve in the United States Congress. If uh, Mitch McConnell can change the rules on on Senate nom- on confirming Supreme Court nominees uh, just before an election, I say that we can we can change the rules on what constitutes a a human being and, and b uh, dog years. Dog versus human years. We can we can we can play with the definitions. Mike, <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> on that on that note, I think we'll leave it. Um, I hope everybody is doing well. Wear a mask. Please wear a mask. Seriously, wear a mask. We uh, had my own scare this week, and that was not fun. Uh, still not out of the woods yet. Um, still self-isolating to wait to see if I've got any symptoms. Fingers crossed. Um, I, myself and my family are okay. And uh, fingers crossed that everybody listening, that you and your family are okay too. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, please make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter. And if you would like to get a two-month free trial on a Banter Premium membership where you can read all of our election coverage uh, and, and in-depth articles you can do that just click on the on the red button in the article or on the newsletter uh, when you're listening to this and uh, go ahead and get your um, free two-month trial and uh, Mike any messages for our wonderful listeners Johnston Atoll statehood 2021 baby <laughs> <laughs> okay until next week everyone take care